in the middle of a series on the book of Numbers we've entitled In the Wilderness. In the Wilderness is our title because the book of Numbers in the original Hebrew is Bamidbar. It's actually literally in the desert, in the wilderness. And last week, Pastor Mark shared with us a little bit how form follows function. And he had the chairs all set up and he had the signs out. Um, and had some of you participate as different tribes, and I love that kind of interaction. I hope that you enjoy that as well. Trying to fit into this space, try to get into this space a little bit of the form that uh, actually did exist back then. I'd like to catapult off of what Mark did last week and go a little bit of a different direction to add layers. Uh, many years ago now, uh, we talked a little bit about how the Bible, the teachings of the scriptures, don't always just fall linearly, meaning this comes after the other, comes after the other, comes after the other. But oftentimes when you read a text, there's a layer upon layer upon layer. So you read it once for that layer, but then you read it again for a whole other layer. And then you read it again for a whole other layer. And so what, today's going to be a little bit different. We're going to talk about the number 12. Which reminds me of this song, of course. Yes? So every time I think of 12, and especially since I have a toddler in my household now, anytime I think of any numbers, I think of something like this. Now, what's fascinating, this is really a non sequitur. This is kind of a footnote, freebie. Watch how the ladybugs line up at the end because it feels or it looks to me extremely biblical. So they're going to do this little line thing. Many of you know this. Yeah, some of you are bouncing along. Take you back to the olden days. Yes. Back to a happier time. Back when this was the greatest stress in your life. Can I count to 12? Now look at the arrangement. Does anybody see the tribes of Israel around the tabernacle? I mean, come on. This is good stuff right here. Yeah. And then the, t the presence of the Lord just gets so big. And then the devil comes in and takes it out. Okay. So... Anyway, I'd like to talk about the number 12, and it's going to be a little bit more on the academic side, and I'll try to bring it home in maybe an applicable lesson for us all, because there's something really, I think, um, cosmological, something big, something universal going on in these texts that we don't often see. Uh, getting down into what are the lessons that we can draw. I, I want to take this lesson home. Here's the, here's the teaching, or here's the phrase that I want to take home. Oftentimes, if we come to a service or we come to the Bible wanting to take that, we will miss sometimes this big, broad picture that's being painted throughout the text. And that big, broad picture could also inform how we live and how we uh, move forward in our faith. So I want to talk about the number 12, and I want to talk about how the numbers that you find in the Bible are extremely significant. And any time you come across any detail in the Bible, the number one question you need to ask yourself is, why? In fact, why is the question that never dies? Why is the question that is constant in my household with toddlers? Why is the question that we should always be asking because it pushes us further and deeper into understanding and could open our eyes into seeing, oh, maybe that's why. There's something there that I just didn't see before if I didn't ask the question why. So for example, why are there seven days of creation? Why does God say it is good seven times? Why does the first verse of Genesis 
start off with seven words. Now, in our English, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's ten words, but in the original Hebrew, Breshit, bara, Elohim, et, Hashemayim, ve'et, Ha'aretz, it's seven words. Why? And the verse two, by the way, is 14 words, which is another multiple of seven. And the two verses together is 21 words, which is three times seven. Why does that exist? What's going on in those passages? These are the questions that I would love for us to continue to ask, because if we ask those questions, they push us further and deeper. Well, historians and people who have studied this stuff for a while have noticed that seven actually pops up all over the place. For example, Rome is understood to be founded on the seven hills. Now, there's actually more mountains, for example, this one down here, and there's some others around there, but there's something mythical. There's something symbolic about the number seven, so much so that in the history of Rome, it is told that Rome sits on seven hills. Which, by the way, may be significant for when you get to the book of Revelation and that number seven pops up again when it talks about the beast. Seven in Greek idea or in Greek anthropology, if you're talking about humanity, the Greeks understood life actually to be broken down into ages of seven. So until the age of seven, you were a child. Until the age of 14, you were a young boy. Up until the age of 21, you were a young man. And post-21, you would become an adult. Which, by the way, is where we have inherited the age 21 for the drinking age. It comes all the way back from the Greeks splitting up life into segments of seven. But if you went even further, the Greeks would say that there are even seven stages of life. Infancy, childhood, boyhood, adolescence, young man, man, and then elderly or on your way to death. And they would even split up life into that particular. What is going on with this seven? What's going on with these numbers? Most people, when they study this, would suggest to you that the reason why seven seems to be a significant number is because most ancient civilizations, going as far back as you can go, to the Sumerians, to the Babylonians, all the way back, noticed that there were seven stars in the sky that didn't act like other stars. Now, we have lights, and not many of us study this in the same way, but in the ancient world, when you don't have electricity, you don't have lights, the way in which you find your bearings, the way in which you understand the world in which you lived in, lived in, a, the, in the heavens, in the skies. And astrology was very, very important for navigation, for understanding who you are. And when you looked up into the sky, all the stars seemed to go in the same direction because, of course, now that we know with our uh, understanding of the world, etc. But there were seven stars that didn't do that. There were seven stars that, in Greek, wandered in Greek, you say planetes. And they understood that there was something going on with those seven stars, those seven wanderers, that they then, through a lot of history, began to deify and recognize that up there, there's some power, there's some movement, maybe there's a god or goddesses that are actually up there moving and controlling and overseeing all the things that are happening down here. They are the ones who are fully and completely in control of what is happening down here. What's going on up there is controlling what is going on down here. 
And because there's seven of them, seven became representative of the idea of all that is up there is controlling all that is down here. Wholeness. Completion. Now, some of you might be, like, concerned that we are taking the Bible and saying it has connections to all of these other things. That's a beautiful question that we should ask after the talk. So, next. The Babylonians were the, one of the first people to be astrologers, look up into the sky and begin to do all of this stuff. In fact, we have written in stone uh, somebody who is actually acting as an astrologer, somebody who can read the stars, the constellations in the, st- in the sky, etc. In fact, the story of the Magi, the story of the three wise men that are, is popularly known, that walks and uh, wanders from the east to visit Jesus who is born, most people would suggest to you, because they're coming from the east, which is in the direction of Babylon, that these people are not actually wise men in the way that we think of it, but probably astrologers or maybe even Jewish settlers who had been from that particular area who had learned about astrology in some particular way, and they are making their way because of the stars to see the one star that is born. This is going to come actually later on in Numbers, where a star is coming out of Jacob that is going to crush the star of Esau. It's a beautiful prophecy. Anyway, so... Some would suggest that these people are even coming from Babylon with that kind of idea. Now, my understanding is that it was the Babylonians and then the Greeks that were to then identify somewhere along the line that this movement of the stars in the sky, there were specific patterns that were to be found there that they called the zodiac. Now, zodiac is just a Greek word that simply means the circle of animals that they would look at certain arrangements in the sky and recognize that that arrangement, they kind of go together. They go together. They go together. And whether or not the months came first or the constellations came first, this idea of the zodiac, this idea of these symbols, these constellations in the sky overseeing everything that's going on down here. And if we looked up into the sky, we could discern, we could somehow glean, we could somehow mystically understand what is going on down here began to get woven into the popular culture, starting with the Babylonians and then the Greeks. This is another side note, but if you study further, the Greeks even had documents that would suggest that if you happen to be born under one of those certain signs, then it would affect your personality, it would affect your gender, it would affect who you are, your status, all these kinds of things. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It's a little bit more than, hey, baby, what's your sign? So they believed that what is happening up there seems to have some sort of power or control to what's going on down here. Let's talk about that number 12 then. What is significant about that number 12 when it comes to our study when, we get, when it gets to the Israelites into the campments? How many tribes are there? There's actually 13 children. Why are there then 12 camps? Because somewhere along the line, and this is deep study and history and nuance, there seems to be this understanding that the 12, the symbolism of the powers in the sky, what is happening up there in the universe, 
is now making its representation down here on earth. And the Israelites began to arrange and organize themselves according to that symbolism. Remember, for those of you who have studied this, the Israelites were actually taken out of Israel and sent over to Babylon for many, many years. And some would suggest that it is while they are there, in the birthplace of astrology, where the ideas and the concepts and the formation of this idea began to take shape and take hold in who they are. So much so that people have even begun to equate or match up particular signs of the zodiac today with particular tribes. Now, I will tell you, there is zero agreement. You can do your own Google search. There is zero agreement from a host of people what signs should go with what tribe. It's really not all that important for my purposes. What's simply important is to say people have noticed and have actually written about and studied and suggested and made, you know, propositions that something is going on with the arrangement of the twelve that seems to be similar to the arrangement of this astrology. Some sort of connection, some sort of... The Babylonians had the 12, the Greeks had the 12, and now the Israelites are also following in a very similar pattern. The the understanding and idea that constellations in the sky had some sort of power, some sort of supernatural power or presence, goes way, way back and follows us all the way forward. Now, for those of you who are a little nervous right now, which I can imagine might be a few of you, Let me remind you that the oldest book that we have in our Old Testament, the book of Job, actually mentions these constellations. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations? In Hebrew, the word mazarot is only found here. It's the only place it's found in their seasons, or lead the bear with its cubs. And then it ends with this phrase, do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you do this? This is, of course, a rhetorical question. And what this passage is suggesting is, okay, you get it. You understand that those stars and those constellations, they equal certain animals or symbols or powers or signs. I get it. I understand. You get it. Can you control them? Can you do that? Can you fashion anything that's up there? Of course, the answer is no. So starting in Job, which is the oldest book that we have, carried all the way through now to the tribes, we understand that there is some sort of play, some sort of interaction with the astrology of the ancient Near East and the biblical text. Let's take it even one step further. If you want to hop on a plane with me, this is a place called Sepphoris, also known as Sipuri. It's a wonderful town that's uh, called the Little Bird. And if you notice, it's up on a hill, and there's all sorts of different places that I'm going to take you to. Right down here in this kind of upper left corner is a synagogue. It's not terribly far from the city of Nazareth, 
a place where an ancient first century Jew grew up named Jesus. Good job. Okay. Just making sure we're all on the same page. Is this thing on? (laughs) Okay. So not too far. And Jesus being a worker, being a craftsman, most likely, most scholars would tell you, growing up would have worked in a place called Sepphoris. In this synagogue, which dates somewhere to around the fifth century AD, this is what it looks like on the inside. Now, the whole city is absolutely beautiful. Mosaics all around, beautiful plastered walls, very metropolitan, very cosmopolitan city. A lot of activity is going on there. I think some people have suggested that 250,000 people either resided or lived by their very, very active city. Does anybody notice what's right in the middle of the synagogue? What is that? Right in the middle, with the sun god in the middle. This is a synagogue. This is a place of worship to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And here, right in the middle, they have the signs of the zodiac with the names of the months written right next to each particular, in Hebrew, written right next to each particular sign. In a synagogue. Can I overemphasize For those of us who are a little concerned about all these pagan symbols coming into religious spaces, this is something that we might have to contend with for a long time. This is something that's part of our history. Now, why do I tell all of this to you? What's so big? Am I just wanting to stir up controversy? I guess I was born under a certain sign. Yes, I just want to poke, say, okay, now go figure it out, right? The reason why I share this with you is because... I'm going to share with you my opinion, and as we do here at Spark, hopefully it sparks conversations and maybe some thoughts or insights from the rest of you. My opinion is this. This is actually something really beautiful and something really telling about the intentionality of the Israelites and something that we can carry even to this day about how they understood different ways of understanding the universe, of how they interacted with their world that had pagan signs and pagan rituals, uh, pagan symbols, and how they began to see those things in ways that were redemptive, ways that honored the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that honored the way of Jesus. And I'm going to suggest to you, by reading an ancient, another ancient guy by the name of Josephus, that we can probably pull in some of these lessons. So I want you to hear what Josephus says. Josephus is born somewhere actually around the same time of Jesus. He is taken by Rome uh, because he loses a battle in a very bad way and begins writing history for Rome to explain to Rome who are these weird people, the Jews. That's Josephus's job. And we have now, and you can, it's amazing to me, he took 60 years to write this. You can download it in 30 seconds on your phone right now. Uh, He wrote a whole bunch of explanation and interpretation for other people to understand what are we doing, we as the Jews? Why do we do this? That's what we're going to read. So it's fairly lengthy, but I hope that you catch some of the brilliance of the insight. 
Now here one may wonder at the ill will which men bear to us, O great, he speaks like this, and which they profess to bear on account of our despising that deity which they pretend to honor. For if anyone do but consider the fabric of the tabernacle and take a view of the garments of the high priest and of those vessels which we make use of in our ministration, he will find out that our legislator was a divine man and that we are unjustly reproached by others. Somebody who needs to retranslate it. Hey, if anybody's concerned or confused or critical about what it is that we're doing with this tabernacle thing, with all the vestments, with all the clothes, what is that all about? Josephus is going to say, if they look closely, if they pay attention, you're going to find that the person who gave us charge to do all of this was a divine person. The way in which we have now formulated our rituals, our tabernacle, our clothes, comes from a divine place. And so, if you want to hate, don't hate. That's the unjustly reproach. Don't hate. For if anyone do without prejudice and with with judgment look upon these things, and here's this beautiful phrase, he will find... They were, every one of them, made in way of imitation and representation of the universe. Do you hear what Josephus is saying? Look, all of this stuff that God has given us in the desert to do, put on these clothes, put these rocks in these pockets, make sure the tabernacle looks this way, make sure the fabric is this way, make sure all the alignment is this way, make sure all of the... Why did God instruct the Israelites to do this stuff? Stuff that when we get to numbers, we're like, okay, are we done with the details? I don't want to read a blueprint all the time. Josephus is saying the reason why we did it this way is because, A, God told us to do it this way. B, everything that you see here is a representation of the entire universe. What they are attempting to do in their formulation of the tabernacle, in their clothes, in their how they set out the tribes, is supposed to be to you, to us, a symbolic representation of everything that happens up there. Symbolically represented right down here. That, to me, is a beautiful picture that this isn't just religious, step-by-step, do this. It feels to me as if For those of us who have a temptation to constantly be looking up, tell me something, give me a sign, show me, okay, well, I was born under this, therefore my destiny might happen to be this. For those of us who might happen to have an impulse to do that, don't look up there, look out here. This is where you find all of your meaning your purpose, your identity. Everything that you think is up there is now represented down here. When Moses distinguished the tabernacle into three parts and allowed two of them to the priest as a place accessible and common, he denoted the land and the seas, these being of general access to all. But he set apart the third division for God because heaven is inaccessible to men. So that place is supposed to represent a place that you cannot go. But yet, 
It's here. And every year, somebody from our people gets to go in there. And when he ordered the 12 loaves to be set on the table, he denoted the year as distinguished into so many months. That's for those of you who need a little just shot of Pokemon. Okay. So the 12 loaves are there to represent the cycle of the year and to remind yourself that when you eat of this bread, you are entering into a cycle of food that you don't need to look up there for. It's right here. God is providing for you right here. By branching out the candlestick into 70 parts, he secretly intimated the decani, or 70 divisions of the planets. And as to the seven lamps upon the candlesticks, they re- they referred to the course of the planets of which that is the number. The seven on the candlesticks, there's that seven again, represents the planets. The planets that are up there are now represented in something down here. And this is one of my favorites here. The veils, too, which were composed of four things. They declared the four elements, for the fine linen was proper to signify the earth, because the flax grows out of the earth. The purple signified the sea because that color is dyed by the blood of a sea shellfish. And blue is fit to signify the air, and the scarlet will naturally indicate, be an indication of fire. So even the very vestments that are on the tabernacle are to represent all of the elements of the stuff of earth, wind, fire, earth, water. And then it gets really personal. Now the vestment of the high priest being made of linen signified the earth. The blue denoted the sky being like lightning in its pomegranates and in the noise of the bells resembling thunder. So this picture, whenever you see this, you are to be reminded of the earth that you live right here. And that the beauty of all of this creation is represented whenever you look at this person. This person represents all of that. And as you come to the priest and as you interact with the priest and as the priest does his rituals, you are reminded that the entire universe is joining in chorus and joining in song with this ritual. And for the 12 stones, whether we understand by them the months or whether we understand the like number of the signs of that circle, which the Greeks call the zodiac, we shall not be mistaken in their meaning, which is really ambiguous. Josephus is saying, we get it. And like, could you tell us? Because I'm not quite sure which one you're talking about. But there, the reference is once again to the zodiac, to the symbols, to those signs. Let this explication suffice at present. Since the course of my narration will often and on many occasions afford me the opportunity of enlarging upon the virtue of our legislature, which is a very uh, complicated way of saying, I'll just stop here because I'm got, I've got about a thousand more pages I'm going to write. And over those thousand pages, I'll probably bring this up again, which by the way, he does. And when he brings it up, he's like talking about how great our God is, the virtue of the person who has given us these commands. In other words, what Josephus is saying, when you see this, when you participate in these activities, when you put on the vestments, when you make the linens, when you see the colors, all of that, 
that you once thought or once searched out up there, out there, somewhere, the gods, the deities controlling this world, they're not up there. They are now represented right here amongst us and the tribes set in those constellations. You once looked to the stars to find your purpose, your identity, your personality, who you were, but now you get to look to the 12 tribes, your community, and what Pastor Mark mentioned last week, your family. That is where you get your meaning, your identity, your purpose. You weren't born under the constellations. You were born under this community. Are you with me? There's this amazing video, the entire universe in about 60 seconds. And I spliced in at the end a picture of the priest's vest. So over the next 60 seconds or so, the entire universe, from the very beginning, 13.7 some odd billion years ago, all the way to this present moment, compressed in this single video, 60 seconds long. And we get to experience and be captivated by the power of it, the amazement of it, the hugeness of it, all of that which led us here to this particular moment, all of that power, all of that change, all of that evolution, all of those shifts and those changes, all of that compressed into this moment. Galileo. And I feel as if when I read this ancient text and it talks about these symbols, that to me feels like the power that the entire universe, the God who has created all this universe, is now found and represented in these forms, in these functions. That, my friends, is another layer as to why there are 12. Everything up there. That which we used to look to, mysterious, astrological, is now down here in all of us around the camp together. Some closing thoughts. Just some conclusions that I hope may be of help. First, Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And I feel as if sometimes we are so concerned or scared to even consider how God may be speaking to us in any way outside of the four walls of the church, as we say. And maybe, maybe, maybe our ancestry has called us to reach deeper, to see beautiful resonances of God's power and presence through everything that exists in this universe. Number two, the heavens to which we often look for secret knowledge are found now here amongst the family of God. 
I don't have to go into my secret hiding place and uh, recite some sort of incantation or, you know, shuffle my cards in the right way or do all. No, I get to go to my family and share with my family. I got a question about my purpose, my identity, my struggle, the prayer time that we had. We get to come here. And then a couple blessings or encouragements. I hope and I pray that you would be reminded that every day that we live is out of this world. Because the mundane, the work, the everyday is actually somehow a representation of the beautiful cosmos that's happening right here. The God of this universe right here, right now. And number two, may you live with an awareness of the divine heavens represented here on earth in all of our rituals, in our songs, in our prayers, in our communion, in our faith, in our everyday walk, in our devotions, in our Bible reading, and in your family. And by family, I mean not just your biological family, but all of us who gather and call ourselves brothers and sisters because the beautiful, divine nature of this world is no longer just something we look to up there, but is now something I get to see out here. You had no idea you were so special, did you? So may you live with that awareness. And that, my friends, is the number 12. God, thank you so much for giving us another opportunity to gather and to share and to break bread and to drink coffee. God, I pray that uh, as we continue this journey through the wilderness, that you would illuminate for us once again more and more layers and help us to understand deeper and deeper truths. And may those truths and those teachings transform us into living into your way. And I pray this in your name. Amen.